Thank you for that reading. Uh, if you haven't got your Bibles open to that passage, then you should have it open by now because that's where we're going to spend our time as we look into the Word of God. I know you've been doing a series on the book of Genesis, and so Luke asked whether I'd cover chapter 21, and I was very pleased to do so. I don't know what you think of when you hear the word faithful. Maybe you think of uh, a friend who stuck with you through the good and the bad times. Or maybe you have a picture of a, a dog who remains at the graveside of their deceased master. Or maybe, like myself, you can reflect on a long marriage, maybe a 50th wedding, wedding anniversary for parents, and think about the commitment they've had to one another for all that time. Or perhaps you think of uh, a pastor who has remained faithful in his church ministry for many, many years, perhaps 40 or 50. Uh, or a missionary who's gone overseas and has been serving the Lord in other places uh, for a complete lifetime. You know, that word uh, faithful, that word faithfulness, it's, it's a really attractive quality, isn't it? Uh, it's something that we would all aspire to have, and it's something we're actually going to see in the passage before us today. And we're going to see it, of course, not so much in human faithfulness, but in God's faithfulness. And so uh, I've labeled the message today, the faithfulness of God. Uh, it really is interesting to me that when you look at Abraham's journey of faith, uh, he has some highlights and he has some lowlights. He has times when he does remarkable things and the next chapter will be one of those remarkable moments in his journey of faith. Uh, but Abraham is a flawed human being like all of us. And so when we look at his journey of faith, we mustn't get caught up with Abraham or with Sarah or other characters. We need to get caught up with the God who called him the God who led him, the God who provided for him. Uh, and this chapter, I think, is a really good highlight of God's provisions, not just for Abram, not just for the chosen father of the faith and his dear wife, uh, but also Hagar and Ishmael, part of his family, but had to be separated. Uh, and then even in his relationship with uh, foreign kings and rulers, you know, all the way through, God proves to be faithful. And it's actually a very powerful theme of Scripture, isn't it? The faithfulness of God. Uh, and often the faithfulness of God is most dramatically seen when things are the most difficult and the hardest. You know, perhaps one of the verses you remember well is in the book of Lamentations, when Jeremiah wrote about God's faithfulness in the midst of the destruction of his own people, the captivity of the nation. You know, this chapter opens with the conception and birth of Isaac. Incredible miracle. A long-awaited promised son. But then it shifts focus to Hagar and Ishmael, who is Abram's first son uh, through Sarah's Egyptian handmaid. And then the chapter closes with this resolution of a conflict between Abram and Abimelech. You know, Genesis 21 is all about God's faithfulness. And so this is my main idea for this morning that you can take away, hopefully, by the end of our message. God is faithful, and so we can trust him in every circumstance to keep his promises 
and provide for our needs. And that's a test. It's going to be tested in your life on a day-to-day, week-to-week, month-to-month, year-to-year basis. Is God really faithful? Do you really believe he's faithful? And do you put it into action? Well, let's begin with the first episode of this chapter, God's provision of Isaac. You know, the text actually emphasizes God's faithfulness because it says, as he said, God had already revealed to Abraham and to Sarah that they were going to have a child. And uh, a miraculous child, in fact, one that would not have normally been conceived and born. And it was according to his promise. It says, as he said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And then it was at the time of which God had spoken. So he'd already said in advance, this is going to happen. Believe it or not, you're going to have a child when childbearing is not common or usual. And Abraham, you're going to be 100 years old and your wife is going to be 90. Now, uh, this isn't the only child they have, actually, in the end. But this is the miraculous beginning of God's fulfillment of a promise, a very critical promise. You know, in the New Testament, we actually read a little bit more about how Abraham and Sarah manage this situation, how they respond to God. Uh, In the book of Romans, in chapter 4, and in the book of Hebrews, in chapter 11, we read both of Abraham and Sarah that they actually had faith in God, despite their doubts, despite their alternative plans with an Egyptian handmaid and the birth of Ishmael they still actually did have faith in God's promise. So the Lord visits Sarah and she conceives a son. And his name is Isaac. Uh, This is an interesting name uh, because it relates very much to the circumstances of laughter. Sarah had laughed when this was first pronounced that she would have her own child. Now... She says, I will experience laughter, a laughter of joy, a laughter of delight, because I've been gifted with this boy. And according to Genesis 17, where circumcision is instituted for this family and this nation, uh, the the boy gets circumcised on the eighth day, as God had commanded. And so Abraham is putting into practice the things that God has commanded as he believes what God has said. Uh, Sarah confesses, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. Not laugh at me. <laughs> it's not like you're a joke, Sarah. It's the delight of, wow, what an amazing gift that God has given to you in this senior years of your life. You know, in impossible circumstances, God has come through. Sarah shouldn't have been able to conceive a child. Uh, Abraham shouldn't have been able to father a child by Sarah at this time of their life, their advanced years. But, you know, God makes all things possible when it's according to his will and purpose. Uh, Our mission is based in New Jersey, very close to the city of Philadelphia, The city of Philadelphia has an interesting history. Uh, If you visit the city, you can see way, way up in the air on a high pedestal a statue of William Penn as one of the founding fathers of that city. 
And uh, this man, William Penn, he had a good relationship with the local American Indians. And one day, the American Indians jokingly said to him that they would give him as much land as he could cover in a day. So he took them at their word and he started walking at dawn and did not stop until late at night, covering as much territory as he possibly could in a day. So once he completed his day's journey, he then approached the Indians to claim his land. You know, you told me, as much as I can walk in a day, you'll give it to me. Now, they were very surprised that he'd taken them seriously. But valuing the keeping of promises, they gave him the land that he had covered. And that land makes up a significant part of the city of Philadelphia today. William Penn simply took the Indians at their word and he received what he asked for. How much more can we take God at his word and receive what he has revealed to us? I'm sure he's a lot more reliable than Indians and a lot more reliable than just getting a bit of land. So that first episode tells us that in God's provision of Isaac, God is faithful. But of course, the arrival of Isaac creates uh, tension in the household. And in Genesis chapter 21, verses 8 onwards, we read about this tension that's grown. Now that this boy has arrived and there's a, a rival called Ishmael and there's a rival woman called Hagar, uh, things don't go as well as you might hope. By the way, often families with these kind of multiple wives and children do experience tension. It's not uncommon, but it's especially true in this situation because Isaac has a destiny that God has planned for him, which is unique to him, and it's not compatible with Ishmael and his destiny. Now, by the way, the Arabs today will tell you that story of conflict has not stopped. It still exists. And so, significantly older than this new arrival, this little guy, Isaac, is Ishmael. He's about 14 years older. So that's a pretty big difference, isn't it, between two boys in a family. Now, we have six grandsons, and they're all extremely close together. Uh, that doesn't mean they don't have any conflict, but they do have fun together as cousins. This is not happening in this household. This is a household where things are going to go bad. And Sarah actually demands that Hagar and her son should be cast out. Uh, and the, what prompts this is that there's this laughter but it's not laughter of rejoicing, it's laughter of mocking. It's a mocking of this new child. Sarah's not happy about it. She feels it very sensitively. And so she tells Abraham, by the way, it's not uncommon for wives to tell their husbands to do something. And she says, cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. Now, it's a little ironic, really, because the whole idea of having this first child was Sarah's idea. You need to give me children, and the way to get children is to use one of my handmaidens, Hagar. If you make her sort of a surrogate wife, then I'll have a son by her, which actually happened, of course. But it was going to bring some very bad outcomes. Now, Abraham's not thrilled about this. I'm quite sure that Abraham loved his son Ishmael. Uh, he'd enjoyed him in his household now for some 14 years. 
so there was obviously a very strong attachment between them. And so he's not really in favor of this request. He doesn't really want to lose his first son. And God intervenes. You know, it says the thing was very displeasing to Abram on account of his son. But God said to Abram, you know, when but God comes in, you know something's going to change. Be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. It's interesting, throughout this chapter, Hagar is not called a wife, not even called a concubine. She's called a slave woman consistently. That's quite important because when you go to the New Testament, you see a comparison between the relationship to Hagar and the relationship to Sarah, the son of the bondwoman versus the son of the free woman. This idea of slavery is built into the whole narrative. Uh, and it is a bondage that unfortunately without the child of promise, we'd all still be in bondage. We'd all still be the slaves to our sin. It's only ultimately through the lineage of Isaac and then all the way through to Jesus that we actually have a deliverer and a saviour. Uh, but he actually said something to Abraham to sort of moderate this loss of his son and Hagar, the mother. He says... Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you, for through Isaac shall your offspring be named, and I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. So he assures Abraham that this boy, even though he's going to be cast out, has, got, has a future, and actually a very positive future, going to be a nation of significance. And he did become a nation of significance. So Abraham, in fulfilling Sarah's demand, <laughs> provides some immediate resources to Hagar and her son Ishmael. Some food and some water. Uh, enough to supply them for a short journey. And one would think, well, gee whiz, that's not enough for them to actually survive. I mean, this is a desert region. If you don't have water, you die of thirst. And that seems to be what's going to unfold in the circumstances. But archaeology actually has shown us that there were a number of settlements that were near Abraham's location. So it wasn't impossible for Sarah, uh, sorry, Hagar and her son Ishmael to get to safety. But it seems like they got disoriented, that they got a little lost in the wilderness. And that wouldn't be hard to do, considering that she wouldn't have been an expert out in the open. She would have been an at-home person. She wouldn't have been out with the flocks. She wouldn't have been out surveying the land. She wouldn't have had any idea of all of the surrounding countryside. But they lose their way, and as a result, their resources run out. And Hagar is so distressed about the circumstances of seeing her son die of thirst that she puts him in a shady place and then moves away so that she doesn't see the final moments of her son's death. She's distressed, but guess who else is distressed? Ishmael is distressed, and he's obviously crying out because the story tells us that God hears the cry of the boy. And in response to the cry of the boy, God intervenes again. God had proven faithful to Abram and to Sarah in the birth of Isaac. Now he's going to prove faithful 
to what he said to Abram about his son Ishmael and also to the needs of this mother and child. And so it says in uh, verse, where are we? Down at about verse 17. And God heard the voice of the boy and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up, lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Reiterates the promise. Then God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water and she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy and he grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow He lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. So their future is secured. Their destiny will come to pass, as God has said. Uh, I'm not really sure why Hagar hadn't noticed that there was a well near enough to meet their needs. Perhaps she was so distressed at her son's condition that she had not been able to see it. But God shows her that there is provision. He has made provision. Now, you can go to Israel, you can actually visit Abraham's well, which probably isn't the well that this is speaking about. Uh, Abraham's well will be in the next part of this chapter. Uh, But these places are actually real historical places. These are not fables and myths and fantasies. These are historical realities that took place in the lives of these people so long ago. So this boy becomes a skillful hunter. He gets married, so his future is secured. You see, God's faithful to everyone who receives his promises. It doesn't matter if there's differences between them. I mean, this boy, his mother, are not the future for the redemption of the world. But they have a future that God includes in his redemptive plan. And they are important as a part of the unfolding history of the interactions in the Middle East. Even though... They aren't the promised and chosen people. So there's one more episode in this chapter which introduces the affirmation that not only was God with Hagar and her son, but God is with Abraham. And foreign kings have noticed it. Look at what it says in verse 22. At that time, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, said to Abraham, God is with you in all that you do. That's a remarkable testimony. Uh, This is not a follower of Yahweh. This is not someone who is worshipping the one and only true God. This is a a foreign person who's had interactions with Abraham earlier in the book of Genesis. The record tells us that. And he says, God is with you in all that you do. It's almost like no matter what you do, Abraham, even when you mess things up, things turn out well for you. Because God is with you. Not because you're smart and intelligent and better than anybody else, Abraham, but because God is with you. And as a consequence, they want to have a treaty. They want to have an agreement between them. And this is God's provision for Abraham again. His faithfulness to Abraham is to protect him in the land while he is just merely a sojourner. He's just tent dweller. He's not got a permanent city. He doesn't have a permanent place. But he is in the land that God has promised to him and his descendants. God is with you. 
So swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me or with my descendants or with my posterity, but as I have dealt kindly with you, so you will deal with me and with the land where you have sojourned. And Abraham said, I will swear. So they're entering into this treaty. But interestingly enough, Abraham brings up a problem. He says, hey, we've got a problem with the well here. He says, Abraham reproved Abimelech. Now, you don't really want to sort of do this right as you're establishing a treaty. I mean, uh, let's face it, get everything settled and arranged and finalized, then maybe raise the issue. But no, do it right away. Abraham's getting straight into it about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized. So there's a dispute here over water. By the way, water is like gold in this region. I mean, to have a well is to have a future. To have no well is to have no future. So we're not talking about the wealth that we might normally associate with wealth, you know, the gold, the silver, all of the extra material goods. Water is gold. And so you want to have access to good water supply. And this well obviously was that provision for Abram at that time. Uh, Abimelech pleads ignorance. He says, I don't know anything about this. It's the first time I've heard it, uh, now that you've brought it up. Uh, So Abraham wants to secure both the treaty, but he also wants to secure the ownership of this well. It's an important part of the physical needs of his family, his flocks, his herds, and so on. And so they put together the exchange with animals, and then Abraham adds something extra. He has seven ewe lambs. And Abimelech's going, what's the extra seven for? You know, we've got our treaty, so why do we need the extra seven? Well, the answer to that is, I want to have a witness between you and me that the well is mine. I dug it, it's rightfully mine. Uh, And it's called Beersheba. And uh, that actually literally has the idea of a well of seven, or a well of the oath. Uh, Beersheba is quite a significant place for us as Aussies, because if you remember the First World War, uh, we had a significant military event that took place in Beersheba, where our, combined with New Zealand forces, actually overtook Beersheba before the Turks were able to sabotage the water, that final charge of our light horse. Uh, Light horse is different from cavalry, by the way. Light horse is basically infantry on horses. And the horses were the one who did all the work. Once you've been out in the desert for a few days and you're getting thirsty, the horses can smell water a long way away. When they smelt that water in that well, there was no stopping them. But it was an amazing victory because it actually opened the pathway to Jerusalem. It broke the lines of the Turks. Uh, By the way, the Turks were part of the Ottoman Empire and the Ottoman Empire was taken down during the First World War which opens the way for all the other things that have happened in the Middle East since. So it's a really significant place, historically for us as a nation, for the nation of Israel as a nation, but for the, rem- the demonstration of God's faithfulness. Because God is providing for Abraham in this arrangement with Abimelech. The dispute is being resolved in an appropriate way, in a way which is peaceable, in a way which provides for the future of God's people. 
So God is faithful even when there's an escalation of conflict. Abraham and Abimelech are able to resolve this matter. Remember, he's there with the commander of his army. So it's not like there's no potential military threat involved here. Uh, and Abraham was no you know, um, weak opponent because he had used his entourage of men to handle other military situations already as well. Uh, so it would, but it wouldn't have been good if these two guys started to fight each other. It would have been bad for both and it would have certainly not been good for those in the conflict. So God is faithful to Abraham in the provision of a miraculous son, according to his promise. He's faithful to Abraham in that he assures him that his other son has a future. And then he's faithful demonstrating how he can provide for Ishmael, Hagar, his mother. And then he's faithful in resolving a conflict in a way which establishes the future of Abraham and his family in that region because they have the water they need. You know, amazingly faithful God is to every promise, even the ones that seem impossible to be fulfilled. And you might think, well, hang on a minute. We live a long way away from Abraham, right? I mean, this is thousands of years ago. Has God stayed that course? Is he still the faithful God that we read of here in Genesis 21? Well, let me read a few New Testament passages that might help you to connect with God's faithfulness. In 1 Corinthians 1 verse 9, it says, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. He's faithful in your salvation, the beginning of your walk of faith with him as a faithful God. And of course, we keep walking in faith. And I've been on that journey now for 50 years. And 1 Corinthians 10.13 has been a verse that I memorized a long time ago, and it's a really, really significant verse for you on your journey of faith, because it reads this, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man or common to humanity. God is faithful and will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but will, with the temptation, provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. You know, so no matter how difficult your circumstances are, no matter how much you're pressured, how much you're drawn away from God, God is still faithful and he can get you through it. He'll provide a way of escape. We have an enemy of our soul. This is what First Thess- uh, sorry, 2 Thessalonians chapter two, uh, 3, verse 3 says, But the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. You know, if there's anyone you need protection from, it's the devil. It's Satan. He's your worst enemy. And yet, God says he will guard us against him because he's faithful. And then uh, this is one that I think is critical for those who are in circumstances of suffering. In 1 Peter 4 verse 19, it says, Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of of God and trust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So even when things are hostile, and for us in Adelaide, that's not a very common experience, to be honest. The hostility we experience might be verbal. It's rarely physical. It's certainly not life-threatening. 
but you know, there are Palestinian Christians in Gaza. Can you imagine being a Christian Palestinian in Gaza right now? And they're calling for Israel to get them out because they're fearful of their lives. Uh, there, are Pal- uh, there are Iranian Christians in Iran who live in the underground church. And it's a growing church. But to be caught as a Christian in Iran, the consequences are deadly. There are places in the world where to be a Christian is actually a death sentence. But this passage says you can entrust your soul to a faithful creator while doing good. Because the worst ultimately that the enemy of our souls can do to us or the enemy of our gospel mission can do to us is kill us. And death for a Christian is entrance into glory. That's the worst that they can do to you. Now, I'm not a fan of dying, and I'm certainly not a fan of dying in pain, not at all. But I know that my death is not the end of my story. It's actually the beginning of a much greater story. You know, so God is faithful, faithful in the past to Abram, faithful to Hagar and Ishmael, faithful to Abram again in his relationship to Abimelech, and he's faithful to you, he's faithful to me, if we put our trust where it needs to be. Our trust needs to be in a faithful God, and he will always come through, even if it means taking us to glory. It's not a bad place to go. And for some of us, we're getting closer and closer to that place. Let me pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for who you are. Uh, You're a God who reveals yourself to us in the beauty of your Son, especially as we remember this time of year with the coming of our Savior at Christmas. And we thank you that you revealed yourself to Abram. You uh, You took him on a journey of faith and you met him all along the way. And as we've read this morning... Uh, Your message of faithfulness is so powerful. Help us to trust you, Lord, even when things don't look like they're going our way, when things look hard or things look difficult, and even in the good times when we're easily distracted from who you are and who you want us to be. So help us, Lord, to be like the New Testament believers uh, who put their confidence in a God who was sufficient for their everyday needs. Help us to be those who trust you because you are faithful. Help us to honor you as you are faithful. And help us to display that faithfulness reciprocally in our relationship with you. And we ask this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen.